Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. In the beginning, I'm like, okay, I lost myself in the search for the one, right? At the end, I'm like, crying and I'm like why am I crying like that's kind of the last scene I'm like why am I I'm not sad I've had this amazing year and um it's because I feel so much deep gratitude and I realize that the one is me right there is no one you're the one so um there was a huge realization I know that sounds very soundbitey but I've really come back full circle to myself right so um that that was where I was and I was like and I filled my life up so much because that was part of the journey like how do I make my life full and complete healing right in the absence of a romantic partner so I was doing so much more creative stuff of course I started writing um you know I have my profession that I was still cultivating and you know communities that I was getting involved in and my spiritual contemplative practices that I was uh investing more in so by the time, you know, I really let go of meeting someone, I, I passed 40, I married myself in the book, which was more symbolic, obviously, and bought myself like a beautiful ring, any, any excuse to buy jewelry. Um, but, <laughs> but yeah, so I really felt it was when I was really happy on my own, happy and whole, feeling whole on my own, not like fake feeling whole, like tricky the universe, but like literally felt good. You know, literally the next week I met somebody. It's when I let go and I just sort of, and then, you know, very quickly afterwards we got pregnant. Um, and I also had not, I wasn't attacked. I really wanted a baby, but I was like surrendering to like whatever is in store for me. And so that word surrender is just such a pivotal word for me in all aspects of my life. How you day, how you day. Hope you all are doing amazing. So today, we're talking to Natasha Scripture. I love her last name because she was delivering a sermon today. We're talking about the journey to self. Her memoir, her book really dives into five themes that you're going to discover throughout the episode. But the journey to self is arguably the most important journey that you will ever take on in your life. And with her, she was initially going on a man fast. That's right, fasting for men. And she discovered how to love herself. And we talk about all those steps, how to basically find your inner guru and make sure that you are able to be the best version of yourself. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. She has a very cross-cultural background, so there's that element to it and how she tapped into all of the cultural influences, but also just how she found purpose. Many of you have reached out to me talking about how you want to do something meaningful in your life, but it really starts with knowing who you are so you can know where to start. And today's episode is a great example of that. I hope you truly check this out, reflect on it, 
get her book and you know pass the message on I, I also appreciate all the kind words that you've been sending in terms of uh, ra- uh, reviews and ratings so please 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 do that that makes the show more visible and um, please as the week winds down don't forget to constantly work on yourself breathe take some moments to reflect on your achievements look at areas that you can improve on and cleanse your environment of toxic people all right love you all enjoy the episode welcome everybody to another episode of as told by nomads and today's guest is natasha scripture she's an author poet humanitarian and former aid worker so you can already see that this is going to be a passionate interview especially as someone who loves authors and poets as a spokesperson for the united nations she covered humanitarian crisis around the world before the un she worked for a variety of organizations including the bbc cnn al jazeera english the world bank ted national geographic and Condé nast publications she's been published in the, in the new york times the telegraph glamour uk the sydney morning uh, morning herald huffington post as well as new york post and her life spans several different countries she travels frequently and she's someone that seeks to inspire and empower women everywhere with her writing and you're going to tell uh, you're going to pretty you're going to pretty much discover that as we dive into her story but her book, Man Fast, a memoir, is her first book, and it's really a fascinating dive into five themes about life that I think can be applicable to every single person in the world. Welcome to the show, Natasha. Thank you so much for having me. The pleasure is mine. I uh, was sharing with you previously before before we got started that I really resonate with your story just because uh, I, I love talking to third culture kids, but your background and your desire to help the world is something that many of the guests and podcasts resonate with. So I'm curious as to where did you figure out how to hone in your curiosity and tap into your need for, you know, cultivating your compassion? Yeah, that's a good question. And, and I think a lot of that I, I owe to my parents because when I was just six months, my mom took me to India. Same with my brother who's older. Like she wanted us to go obviously meet my grandparents, but to be familiarized with my culture. Um, so from the age of six months, um, you know, every other year, every couple of years, we'd be going to India. And I was exposed to a lot in India, obviously. And I had a lot of questions because we have an apartment there, but then there were like homeless people, beggars in the alley and, you know, on the streets. And um, this was in what's now Mumbai. But at the time, like, you know, the, it was everywhere. Um, now there's more like develop, not developed slums, but you know, it's, you don't see as much of it in the city center, but I was like, mom, why, you know, why do we have so much? And why are these kids eating off the street and bathing on the street? And, um, so those were, that kind of sparked my interest and also compassion and empathy, I think, because we are naturally that way as children. Right. Um, absolutely. And, and, and I, you know, basically I, as I write in my book, I really wanted to experience suffering, which I now, I know it sounds very bizarre, but I feel like I had, you know, I obviously relatively privileged upbringing in the Washington DC area, going to private schools, et cetera. And I wanted to give back. So I think that just those first childhood experiences really drove my interest in doing some kind of humanitarian work. And it was quite a path to get there, you know, and I had to get a master's and learn languages and, um, you know, but that's kind of the genesis of all of it. And and I love that you said that because sometimes 
I've had guests in the podcast who've had different backgrounds. It does, you know, whether they came from privilege or they came from not uh, from a place where they didn't have a lot of money. There was this identity discovery that 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 was very important. And you you're being biracial, and you obviously going in and out of understanding this is what it's like to have and not necessarily lack for for things, and then going um, back uh, to, to your mother's country and seeing the juxtaposition of wealth and slums and wealth and poverty and wealth and poverty just in in in, in um, near uh, location to each other. I wonder what that made you, you know, uh, tap into when, as you were forming your identity, especially during the formative period of your life. Yeah, I mean, it's so pronounced in India. It, well, in a lot of uh, so-called developing countries. I mean, you can Same in Nigeria. Niger- I'm from Nigeria, so it's the same exact thing. <laughs> so, Absolutely. Yeah. Like, and I've seen that through my work with the UN. In a lot of these countries, the rich are super rich and the poor are super poor. And there's just that huge gap. And um, it's really startling. Um, and so in terms of forming my identity, I mean, I think back in the 70s, mixed race marriages were... Uh, rather unusual. Now, it's obviously more common, but I remember growing up being like, I loved being half Indian because I, I, it was what made me different. It's interesting because, you know, you always hear kids want to blend in and they want to belong. And I just, I never felt, I mean, in some ways I probably did feel that way, but I, I, I always felt like the Indian, my Indian side was what kind of made me look a little different, but in a good way, or, you know, it was kind of like, made me feel a little special and exotic because as much as kids want to blend in, they also want to feel special too. Um, and so I always like wanted that my brother, I write about this in my book. He always looked more Indian. I look more like my dad and he always had like, you know, he has dark hair, darker skin, round eyes. And I always wanted to look more Indian. And it's just interesting that, um, it was always seen as a positive thing for me. Uh, being of a mixed background because it, I feel, and as my dad always told me, it's like, wow, your mother is from the most, the, one of the richest heritages in the world. And yeah. that's why my book taps into Hinduism. And I study the Bhagavad Gita and I study Ayurveda. It's all of the meditation. I mean, all of this comes from India, really. So it's just wow. amazing that it's, that I feel, and you know, it just feels so natural to me to want to explore all those topics. Well, let's segue into the book, and then we'll dovetail back to some of your personal lives and things you've learned, because I feel like there's a, there's an interest in marriage with those two things. So your book is called Manifest. First of all, someone's going to read that, and they're going to be like, wait a minute. Are you fasting for men, Natasha? And what do you mean exactly by Manifest? So let's start with that. Yeah. Well, it's funny, because the book is so much more than just like a detox from dating. But yes, I define manifest as a spiritual detox from dating. And the original idea was for it to be a fun and sassy self-help book for women who were just disenchanted by men, who were living in you know cities like New York City, who were becoming kind of jaded and cynical. And it was like, you know what, why don't you just take a break and work on yourself and focus on yourself? Because there's no way you're gonna like meet somebody if you're in this state of mind. So it was kind of it was supposed to be like fun and have it was prescriptive. That was the proposal that I sold to the publisher. But when I sat down to write, which maybe this happened to you, um, something else just plopped out. And it was a memoir. And I didn't really fight it. And my age was like, just go with it. And there was a lot that I wanted to say beyond that. Of course, since I'd signed the deal, um, you know, the contract, my I lost my father and all that, you know, I had all these um, this trauma in my life. And for me, writing is very healing. So the book, you know, we almost changed the name. 
but we ended up keeping it. And, and the original draft, um, I didn't, I wasn't able to get the, so much blood on the page. And then a friend of mine who's advice I really trust, who's also an author, she read it and she said, you know, this whole book is about your dad. She did that kind of psychoanalysis of the book. And I said, really? And she's like, yeah. So I got an extension, my publisher. And then I was like, all right, I'm not going to edit myself and I'll just put, you know, put all everything down on paper and then I can always edit it out later. Right. And so it ended up being a lot about, you know, grief. Um, so hopefully there's still some funny bits, obviously about, you know, I did go on a man fast, a nine month detox from dating, but it wasn't just that it was a, a deep dive into myself. It was, um, I felt like I'd lost myself in the search for love. I felt like I needed time to process my grief. I also felt like I had bounced around the world as an aid worker from you know Haiti to Pakistan to Libya. And I never actually slowed down and uh, took the time to really you know experience the grief that I, I had felt because you know there is this collective grief you feel when you meet these refugees, et cetera. It was just go, go, go. So in so many ways, the book is an experiment in mindfulness. Wow. And I love that you you remind me of a couple of people here, Elizabeth Gilbert. I'm sure you hear that a lot. But uh, Trevor Noah uh, is I don't know if you've read Born a Crime is his memoir. I haven't, but uh, I, it's on the list. <laughs> yeah, it's one of my favorite books of all time, period. But he was writing the book and he had said something while I was listening to him in an interview. He said in the process of writing the book, he didn't set it out to be that way, but he realized that the book was a tribute to his mom. Essentially, something to that effect. And when you said that about your dad, it was interesting hearing that. And as creators, as authors, as artists, I, I know a lot of, um, you know, the listeners sometimes ask me, you know, where do you get inspiration from? And, and I, sometimes I say, you know, in, in the process of creating, your inspiration can change. And it does, <laughs> or you can discover something about yourself that you maybe have hidden or even did, didn't realize was there. And so, I thought that was really interesting that you said uh, that your friend who was psychoanalyzing you said this book is about your dad, and um, I'm curious to hear what what you you know what you really think about that. You know why do you think your dad had such a big influence over this book? I know uh, you lost him. I'm sorry about that. But was there any other deeper connection? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, I, I mean, there's a deep love for my father, and you know, I think that. The process of healing or grieving isn't linear and it's unplanned and it's something we can't control. And what happened, it just snaked out in my writing because that was part of what I needed to do in order to sort of move forward. And I, I've had some amazing messages from other people who read the book who, you know, it, they felt it really resonated with them. Just being able to write and talk about like the feelings that you have and, and, yeah, yeah. and um, you know, what grief does to you. Um, it really breaks you open. And it, in, in so many ways at the end of the book, I was, I kind of concluded that it was a gift, right? Because Absolutely. it gets to the core of us. It deepens us. It makes us see what we value. It really um, kind of emboldened my spiritual path. I'd started kind of poking around beforehand, but really it just, um, there was a lot of internal work in so many ways. The book is it's an external adventure because I'm going from India to Italy to Tanzania and all these places. So, yes, in a way, it's very much like eat, pray, love, even though I didn't plan for it to be that way. But it's also really an internal adventure around not only grief, but it's a sustained period of self-inquiry. What is the meaning of life? What is my purpose? Because, you know, I had at that point when I was I'd like done everything and but I was feeling a little bit. Um, disheartened by the state of the world, by my career at the UN, um, 
So in so many ways, it's it, it, it's a pilgrimage inward that I basically yeah. write and share about with with uh, a bunch of strangers. Um, so. I, I love I love that I love that I love the pilgrimage. And um, for those listening, I believe your book Natasha is broken down into five chapters, right? Yeah, um, very so, long chapters. <laughs> yeah, very long chapters. So grief, surrendering, transcending, connecting, and being. And each of the, I love the way you broke it down. They're all themes, and then you started off with grief and. You raise a great point about grief. It's, it's especially coming from cultures. We, we I don't know what it's like in, in India. I have some Indian friends, but I would never want to speak for the whole of India. But in Nigeria, especially me being the oldest of three, there's a lot of uh, suppression of um, uh, of just feeling that would be perceived as making you weak. Don't show emotions, especially as a man. And so you just sort of take things on and then you move on quickly. And that that's seen as a sign of strength. But that sneaks up in in many ways, whether it's in your aggression or in how you treat others, if you don't really process it, if you don't meditate, if you don't become mindful of those things. So I love that you started off with that and then you moved on to surrendering, which is interesting. And I'm very curious to hear your thoughts about the, in, uh, surrendering and how you eventually got to being, because I don't think a lot of us like to surrender. Yeah, we don't. We have a lot of, um, you know, difficulty letting go and surrendering. Um, we want to control everything. And there's so there's some stuff we can control, but there's so much we can't. We can't control love. We can't control grief, all the things that I talk about in depth in the book. Um, so for me, a lot of it, you know, to your point a few minutes ago, uh, there's so much pressure. Obviously, I can speak know in many other parts of the world. I mean, the book is being translated into Korean right now. So even, you know, Korean women, I'm sure in Nigeria, perhaps like pressure on women, also a men that I'm speaking for women right now, it's like to get married, to have children, to fit into this kind of mold, right? Um, India is very much like that. It's your status is defined by whether or not you're single. Um, You know, they use the word spinster in a non-satirical way. Right. Every time I'd go home, my 20s, it was like, when are you getting married? When are you get married? And, you know, people trying to set me up and like it was the be, you know, just the most important thing in the world. At the same time, I was like, I have this amazing career. I'm globe trotting around the world. And like I opened the book up and my mom, you know, is, is Indian. It's, we're on a Skype call and I'm in Pakistan about to go to Swat Valley and have all this cool stuff I'm doing with the U.N. And she's like, have you met any cute boys? And I'm like, mom, that's the last thing that I'm thinking about. And that's like not what defines me. So in so many ways, it's about um, the book, you know, fast has multi-purposes in this, in this sense. Because it's like I'm fasting from all these cultural and social pressures to like be a certain way. You know, at the time, you know, I was in my late 30s, like, so maybe I don't have a family or a partner, but like I'm also living this other life. So it's like surrendering to the fact that my life my life path is different than what I thought it would be when I was like nine years old. And, you know, my mom took me to a fortune teller who said that, you know, I was going to marry a very wealthy man. And, you know, it's just like, okay, let me just let go of all of that. (laughs) I have my unique path. Right. And not a fight against it and not try to, you know, fit into some kind of someone else's dream for me. Um, so surrendering, yeah, that's such a huge thing in my life. Even now, you know, I'm, I'm a new mom and it's like, okay, I can't control everything. I, you know, when I think about it, sometimes I'm like, oh my God, I hope she's happy. I hope this, I hope that I'm like, okay, you know, I need to really to surrender to the, to the moment. You know, it's a lot about it. It's a lot about the moment. What can we do right here, right now? What's our, what's the wisdom that we can tap into right in this moment? Not like, you know, 
two weeks from now, two months from now, let's just try to stay present. And and I find it challenging, especially having lived in New York City for a long time and just being not hand to mouth, but you know, it's a go, go, go town. And um, I, I found it challenging for me to stay present in the moment. Being present is so important. And and you, you raise important points. You have been throughout the whole interview. You, you know, you highlight the fact that despite the current event here in America of women empowerment, I, I, I do think that people don't sometimes understand that, first of all, there's still a lot of work to be done here, right? Because we've defined standards as what everyone should live by, regardless of, of uh, background or identity. And we say this is what should apply to all women. But even when you take that to a global concept, uh, context, there are so many things that go on when you when you think about standards and and things are uh, and you know status quo that really affect and demonize and essentially reduce people to less than uh, you know objects sometimes you know they're dehumanized whether it's how women are treated whether you think about classism in different countries whether it's with the lgbtq community whether it's with how people perceive uh strength or how people perceive love and all these societal pressures and social classes do have a way of defining how we we um you know we see the world but also how we see ourselves and the reason why that's important is as you define yourself based on other people's uh, definitions of who you are, you lose yourself in the process. And the more you lose yourself, the, you know, uh, I think the less the world becomes. And your whole book, in my opinion, is really about finding oneself, but also reemphasizing the point that finding oneself is a 24-7 job. Right. I mean, I always say self-work is daily work, right? Um, yeah. And like we, we're on this tightrope and we can fall off it super easily. And then we just get, get back up and try again. I mean, that's the thing. You're never really done, which is exhausting when you think about it. But living, you know, with deep awareness has so many, it's so many, so many benefits. I mean, I feel like in New York City, a lot of people and in any city, I'm not, you know, I love New York, but I'm just saying, you know, we can be so frantically active that, um, and so busy because there's so much going on that it kind of compromises having a, an internal, you know, kind of a deep inner life, right? It's, it's, there's so much distraction, um, then we lose that sense of connection to ourselves. And then, then we, then what happens is that we become desperate for other things to fill us up, you know, whether it be like drugs and alcohol or uh, relationships or jobs, or we fixate on our appearance, but all that is because we've lost connection to ourselves. So um, you know, in the book, I spent a lot of time where I'm attracted to a lot of natural landscapes, nature, nature, nature. I mean, that's a huge theme. And my dad was a big nature lover. And while this was none of this was planned in terms of where I was going to end up, like, for example, I went to Tanzania because I was working for the UN at the time still. And I, I, they sent me there on a photography assignment. And then I decided to stay and go on a safari. But I just felt like that spaciousness was just incredible in terms of just stoking my creativity and allowing me to really confront some of these emotions that we've been discussing, but also in terms of healing. I mean, nature is just, nature is just, nature is my God, right? Um, (laughs) So much wisdom in nature and it's just such a peaceful place for, for anyone. We, you know, that we're all supposed to get more exposure to nature than we do get, I think. Um, Oh, I love it. I love it. So let's talk about love. Now, 
And then you have a gripe with the English language and its definition of love. In fact, you prefer the affinity uh, that the Greeks have for love and the multiple definitions that they use to define love. Why is this so, Natasha? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one of the things is that I felt like I was so fixated on romantic love. And then you think about Indian culture and Bollywood. It's like there's such a fixation on romantic love, even Hollywood. So I've been, you know, in ingesting Hollywood and Bollywood films my whole life. And it was like romantic love. But yet the Greeks, um, they have so many different words for love, right? I mean, you know, Eros is what I'm talking about. So that's the Greek god of love uh, and fertility where you kind of lose control. Um, the Greeks actually found that kind of love frightening. But, you know, you you don't hear as much about philia, which is love between friends and equals, right? Um, which was like a hugely valuable in ancient Greek culture. Um, storage as well is another kind of love that um, is more familiar love between parents and children, for example. And then there's, you know, um, philosia, which is Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Self-love, so what the Buddhists call self-compassion. Um, and one that I find really interesting that's a little more rare is, um, is agape which they can is sort of a spiritual love or a sort of a, basically what you would might've heard the term meta, um, like the universal loving kindness, the selfless love that's like not attached to anything. So there's so many different words for love. And the reason I write about this in the book is that I think I had um, really uh, failed to notice all the different kinds of love in my life. Um, I was so fixed on romantic love and yet I had you know, just all, you know, a really loving family, amazing colleagues, uh, incredible friends, um, so much in, in my spiritual path, which, you know, I started to feel this love for that, you know, that energy that we can't quite define that some people like to call God. Um, so I just think for single people out there, it's like, just notice the abundance in your life because it's only when you have that gratitude for what you do have that you actually are able to manifest more, but, you know, not to have it in a way so that you do manifest, but just notice, by the way, you have so many people who love people who love you. So even if, you know, you're tired of going on Tinder and looking for the one, um, you still have love in any case, even if it's not like the perfect partner, which by the way, does not exist. <laughs> uh, oh my goodness. Really? Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay. So, but this is interesting to me because in doing research for you, I, I discovered that while while you started this, you know, journey of writing and and uh, making it an interesting, uh, you know, prescriptive book, you were on this manifest. But you did the you then ended up discovering two types of love: one for your lovely, lovely baby, and your partner. 
Yeah. What was that journey like? I mean, it, it, that's such a, it's such a, you know, I mean, maybe that wasn't where you are when you started the book. I'm, I'm not sure, but you certainly yeah. got to to experience two different types of love I, I, right now with your partner and your baby. Maybe you even have different types of love, but that's an interesting uh, place to be right now with your memoir out and you being in a different place. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a huge development. I mean, during my book tour, um, I was eight months pregnant. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> reading from my, my book, but, um, in so many ways, the man fast was, was a heroine's journey. I was single. I was not looking. There was so much relief and liberation and just not looking because it can be so exhausting, you know, dating in New York city, if you've ever done it, um, it's just, it's just, there's so much choice. There's so many weirdos. I mean, it just, it's exhausting. <laughs> it really is. So it was so great to just escape from all of that, that pressure, self-imposed and also cultural pressure. And yeah, I was single and um, you know, pretty much abstinent, except for a one little, um, you know, a uh, little fling in Sicily that was ill-advised. But um, <laughs> yeah, so, you know, only in Sicily. But yeah, and then I, it's, it's so funny because you go back to the Buddhist um, idea of non-attachment. And I had really, by the end of my book, you know, I'm saying in the beginning, I'm like, okay, I lost myself in the search for the one, right? At the end, I'm like, crying and I'm like why am I crying like that's kind of the last scene I'm like why am I I'm not sad I've had this amazing year and um it's because I feel so much deep gratitude and I realize that the one is me right there is no one you're the one so um there was a huge realization I know that sounds very soundbitey but I really come back full circle to myself right so um that that was where I was and I was like and I'd filled my life up so much because that was part of the journey like how do I make my life full and complete feeling right in the absence of a romantic partner so I was doing so much more creative stuff of course I started writing um you know I have my profession that I was still cultivating and you know communities that I was getting involved in and my spiritual contemplative practices that I was uh investing more in so by the time, you know, I really let go of meeting someone, I I'd, I'd passed 40, I married myself in the book, which was more symbolic, obviously, and bought myself like a beautiful ring, any, any excuse to buy jewelry. Um, but, <laughs> but yeah, so I really felt it was when I was really happy on my own, happy and whole, feeling whole on my own, not like fake feeling whole, like tricking the universe, but like literally felt good. You know, literally the next week I met somebody. It's when I let go and I just sort of, and then, you know, very quickly afterwards we got pregnant. Um, and I also had not, I wasn't attached. I really wanted a baby, but I was like surrendering to like whatever is in store for me. And so that word surrender is just such a pivotal word for me in all aspects of my life. And I feel like once we, when we let go and we surrender and we allow the first chapter is actually allowing it's like so much comes our way when we stop trying to control the outcome of things because it's always, we can manifest what we want, but it's not going to happen on our timeline and it might not look exactly what we want it to look like. It might be very different. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, but that's such a beautiful story because it is, you know, to, we talked about surrendering earlier, but the interesting thing is if I believe your, your partner is Iranian. Yes. Yeah. And 
with that, I, 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 I always wonder, I'm, I'm dating, my girlfriend is, um, Afghan, she's Afghan American. So, and I'm Nigerian. And so there's obviously different cultural elements. I do wonder since, you know, this is a podcast that dives into culture, if the approach for dating someone from a different culture is different than you would have, if you were dating, say a New Yorker when you were here. Yeah. Well, you know, because I was at the UN for 10 years, a uh, lot of the people I dated were actually from different cultures. In fact, um, I don't even, I think I had one American boyfriend, like literally, like I've dated Frenchmen and Indian men and, you know, so the full gamut. So when I found myself dating an American, of course, New York is so international too. And I've always been like drawn to, uh, not drawn to foreign men, but people who have like traveled obviously, because I right. feel like that's a passion of mine. So um, I always knew that whoever, and I probably have a mixed marriage as well. And, you know, when I think about our baby girl, I'm like, wow, she's so lucky because she's got two super rich histories, you know, Iran and India to pull from. And I really want to make sure that we do together, educate her and, um, you know, maybe I'll write a children's book or something about it one day, but I, please do, <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's, it's the way for, you know, I mean, everybody's now with the globalization and I mean, there's just so much uh, mixed dating and I think it's so rich and exciting and different. And I'm learning so much about Iran. Of course, he moved here when he was seven. So he's quite American. But then, you know, his parents speak Farsi to him. And um, I was like, should I learn Farsi? Uh, but, you know, or maybe our baby. So I, I love it. It's, it's just it's great and it's rich. And but there's nothing wrong with marrying someone from your own culture either, of course. Um, I think yeah, the important yeah. thing is just to be open. Uh, yeah. you know, no yeah. matter what, right? That, that's, exactly, that's exactly it. But you, you did you, the uh, second type of love is that I wanted to touch on was with your daughter. Now, I've never been a mother, and I think mothers are the original CEOs. I always, I'm always grateful for my mom for everything she did for us because she raised three boys, and that was that was just a lot, especially across all those uh, countries we were moving. So, are you ready? Yes. Oh, was I ready? I was completely ready. Um, I was ready. But I mean, also, I feel like I'd done everything in my life. Like I'd done, I'd written a book, I'd worked for the UN, I'd, I'd had all these love affairs. I just felt like I'd gotten everything out of my system. And I did wait until like the last possible moment, I guess, 41. But, um, you know, I feel hope, hope that I will be a really great mom because you know, I just feel like 100% invested in her. And I think if I, me personally, if I had gotten pregnant in my early 20s, I would have probably felt like, oh my God, I, I have more that I want to do, but I can't, I can't travel, I can't do this. So for me personally, because I had all these aspirations, um, I think it worked out really well timing wise. Of course, like being an older parent apparently is harder because, you know, you're older and more tired, but I mean, I feel fine uh, yeah, yeah. so far. I mean, it's been eight weeks, but I, I think, um, that love is just really insane. Yeah. Um, oh my God. And she started smiling and I just like cry when I talk about it. And I watch Call the Midwife. I love that show sometimes. And I'm like, every time they pull a baby out, you know, of somebody, a woman, then the baby's crying. I remember how she looked when, you know, I first saw her and it's just, it's the most amazing love. I feel so blessed. Like I literally feel like there's nothing else that I want in the world. I literally have everything I want. And it's like all in that little girl, you know, and my partner, which, you know, I talk about this in book because I was 
thinking about having a baby of my own because I couldn't meet somebody that I actually could see myself procreating with. And, um, but then I was so conflicted about it because, you know, I didn't want to settle. Right. And then I didn't, I didn't want to have a baby without a dad because my dad was so important to me. Not that I think it's wrong if someone does that at all. It's not, I think it's amazing. I think single, being a single mom, you talk about mothers being like warriors and like, it's, I mean, I can't even imagine being a single mom. Like it's so incredible to have a dedicated partner. Um, but I have, I take my hat off to women who've done it on their own and, I, that's such a huge challenge, but yeah, I've even seen a new side of myself, like in terms of multitasking. I mean, it's incredible <laughs> just what you can do when you, you know, yeah. So, you know, less mindfulness pro- probably as a mom, just because, you know, you, there's so much you, you, you gotta do. Um, but you know, the most important thing is to, for her to be healthy and happy. So it's all, that's the focus always. Well, I, I- I love that, and um, I'm, I'm really glad that you got this to, to share. I can hear the passion, the love in your voice. So I know that you're going to be a great mom. I'm just going to call it right now, okay? This, uh-huh. is, <laughs> this was the episode uh, that it was proclaimed. But, <laughs> okay, so before I wrap up, I want to touch, in, uh, touch on your professional aspects a little bit, and then we'll dive into uh, the last final questions. I know a lot of listeners here are aspiring change makers or change makers, and Having one of my close friends, I don't know if you know her, but she's, her name is Claudia Kor- Korbla. Um, she's worked in World Bank, the United Nations, and she's been a former guest on the show. And one of the things that I've observed from afar is that there's a difference between working in the field and working at headquarters, I believe. That's what it's called, something? Um, headquarters versus field. Yeah. Can you explain those two dynamics? Because I think people sometimes have a romantic idea of what it's like to work for the United Nations or the World Bank, but what exactly is it like? Yeah, um, that's a good question. I mean, I think it's different for everybody, but, um, you know, the World Bank, I was pretty young when I when I started there. I mean, I was in my late 20s and I had a junior position and I felt a little like I wanted more. I was in headquarters in Washington, D.C., and um, it felt very. Yeah, it was very corporate. And I wanted at the time I was like, oh, I want to get my hands dirty. I want to go out and see the world. Um, I did finagle assignment to Lima, but um you know, I didn't at my particular job, it wasn't the most um, kind of uh, challenging and rigorous uh, job. Of, of course, it just depends on what division you're in. Again, I was younger. I had to pay my dues. And um, when there was an opportunity at the World Food Program where I ended up going, which is a part of the UN in Rome, I moved there when I was 30. Um, it was just a consultancy for three months, but I really hit the ground running there. And that that agency is just really incredible because I know the UN has uh, sometimes a bad reputation for being bureaucratic and stuff, but that was just all hands on deck. I mean, there was a cyclone in Myanmar right when I started working and I was just given so much responsibility because they do so much with few resources. So you'd have, unlike at the bank, um, at the World Bank, where I was at WFP, you'd have like three people doing one, I'm sorry, one person doing the job of three people. So it was a 24-7 kind of setup. And I was, you know, like I said, I was traveling quite a bit. I was an emergency spokesperson. Um, I really got to see the world, which is just so, I'm so grateful. So it really depends at the UN. I mean, that I was based in Rome, uh, which is the headquarters of WFP, but I also was in Bangkok as the regional public information officer. So I got to see a lot of Southeast Asia and headquarters is important because, you know, it's where you go to kind of rub shoulders with the 
you know, important people can help you in your career. But I think, you know, the field is where you really, um, it's the most gratifying in a way because, um, you have some, a little more autonomy and then it's a little, it's a little less political than headquarters, which I think can apply to a lot of other organizations, but you also see the work, um, you're really there living it day in and day out. You know, you're in the field, you're seeing the people you're trying to help. Um, you're seeing aid being delivered. Um, so I mean, the field is always where people kind of prefer to be, um, because it's also interesting, you know, if you're going to new posting, as you know, being a third culture kid, you know, every few years moving somewhere new and completely immersing in another culture, it's, it's just the most incredible experience. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that, that's a good, uh, yes breakdown of that because the field you you worked in Haiti right Haiti was a very big experience for you right if I remember correctly yeah, from- Haiti was my first emergency which is why it's probably the most impactful but you know it was right after the huge earthquake in 2010 exactly. yeah and you know you, you I saw it suffering on just such a massive scale and and you also see what you can endure as a human being because you know I didn't sleep for many weeks and we were we had tents um, I ate very little because there was a queue for the food and it was always too long. And I was, it was just go, go, go. Because part of my job was trying to raise awareness, trying to raise funds, communicating to the external world, what the impact was humanitarian impact of the earthquake and the resources that were needed. So, um, you know, I lost maybe 15 pounds when I was there. I was just there for the month, um, right after the earthquake, which is the most taxing because obviously that's when you need the most help. But, um, I found that really um, a, a very growing experience, but also, um, you know, humbling in so many ways as well. But it's it's incredible what your body can endure. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I can, I can imagine. And uh, you do talk about that in the book about especially how you work through feeling, you know, even whether it's it's understanding how to feel compassion. Because so, sometimes you probably just didn't feel like you could suffer, I guess, uh, or understand it. And I, I think there was a portion of the book where you were really talking about understanding that and um, allowing yourself to feel, which is something we don't do. Well, we don't do, and especially in that line of work, I think you know, aid workers become a little sometimes desensitized or they have to to be able to get the job done. Um, and some people just self-medicate. I'm not saying all aid workers or anything, but you know, in different ways, right? Um, I mean, some people turn to alcohol. That's that's why sometimes at the end of a long day, there's always like whiskey or something around because you're just that's just, you know, it kind of numbs that that collective pain that um, I was mentioning earlier. But I do think the most important quality that we can have or cultivate as human beings is empathy. And um, without empathy, we are just lost, you know, and that's what I love so much about my partner. He's a doctor and he's so empathetic, like he will cry at someone else's pain. Like when I was in labor, he was like crying. I'm like, wait, who's going through this? You know, it's like he feels the pain. And when we feel other people's pain and to your point earlier about, you know, being a man and not feeling like you can let yourself go in that way and be emotional. I mean, I'm hoping things change because I find it so beautiful when a man is in touch with his emotions in that way or a human in general, because, um, that, that to me is a sign of a very healthy person. Me too. I, I believe so too. Uh, you 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 do have interesting thoughts on in organized religion, if I remember correctly. Is that correct? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm not a big fan of. <laughs> I, I couldn't tell. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was like, do we have to temper this? Um, no, no, no. I know the reason I brought it up is because I think you have an interesting point, and and I know I'm sure that a lot of people would agree with you, but I want you to express yourself because I, I think a lot of people might say, I wanted to say that same thing, but I never thought I could. Yeah, I mean, I, I. You know, I want to be able to respect, you know, people who subscribe to an organized religion, but I I do really believe that um, it can limit us in so many ways. Um, I'm very spiritual, uh, whatever that actually means in a way, but I don't feel like I feel like it's such a personal experience that, you know, can't be um, encapsulated in a book that was written by a man you know, thousands of years ago, whatever we're talking about, the, you know, the Bible or the Quran or the Torah in a different cultural context that doesn't even apply to today. I mean, I think that religion can provide a framework for people, but I, I really am a per, I really, I guess would say that I, I like people to be their own gurus, right. To tap into their own inner wisdom instead of relying on um, somebody else's because we all have access to that. And that's, you know, where meditation comes in. Um, and it's such an important practice to cultivate. It's, you know, we all have access to the same wisdom. Uh, when I was writing this book in so many ways, cause I had all this uh, spaciousness, right. And I had this time and I was just, I felt like I tapped into some flow and something inside of me that I hadn't tapped into. And sometimes the words that would come out of me didn't feel like they were actually coming from me. And I guess that's what a lot of artists describe as, um, you know, being in this flow, right? It's like something else takes over. And in so many ways, I feel like this book, even though the, the, the title is kind of funny sounding, um, it was divinely inspired because there was some wisdom that wanted to come, come through me, right? So I was like a vessel. It wasn't even like my wisdom in so many ways. It was like the universe speaking through me. And I just find it so much more liberating to to not have an organized religion. I mean, to, to just create your own religion. You know, I just think that there's so many, especially when it comes, when you look at women and, and all of the main monotheistic religions and how women are um, seen as secondary citizens um, and, you know, literally uh, how religions have oppressed women and um, minorities um, and, you know, non-conforming sexual uh, you know, gays, et cetera. So I, I think there's a lot that's wrong with organized religion and we really need to be mindful of that. So you're more for spirituality. It sounds like. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that we, this pro we, I am for self excavation. So when you do that, when you do that internal work, you're going to, you don't need religion. You've got it all. It's all in us. So yeah, I, I would, um, I would prefer to, to live in a world where there wasn't organized religion. Absolutely. Well, like, see, I'm glad you got to express that. I mean, this is, I think we should be in a place where everybody can say what, what they feel and, uh, you know, uh, understand that. So, I mean, I guess my point, just to one more thing about that, it's like, I think that we have to be extremely discerning of external teachers, right? And by that, I mean, like, whatever it's said in the Bible, or even the Bhagavad Gita, or the Torah, or the Quran, it's like, you know, be discerning, use your own intuition, right? Like who, you know, we don't know anything. We don't have, no one knows anything for sure. Right. Um, but that's why I'm always like a proponent of getting in touch with your internal guru, like even self-help workshops and 
books like the next next big self-help book and you know power of now all this i mean those books can be useful and help people and help them like get on their path or help with their healing i i don't you know say that they don't have a, a purpose but i just think that we need to be discerning with the the what we consume and then you know start to trust our own instincts and our own intuition really our own intuition holds all of this kind of magic if we just trusted ourselves more Wow. Okay. Interesting. I'm I'm sure that you have some practices on meditation, being mindful in the book as well, or even just following your work. Uh, This is something you're truly passionate about. So uh, there are thoughts on that for sure. Um, Last, uh, last thing before the final question, where can people find you? Oh, people can find me on Instagram at Natasha scripture or on Twitter at Nat script. Um, or they can visit my website, www.natashascripture.com. Okay, gotcha. I love it. And I'll make sure I put that in the show notes. The, the last question is, is my mission statement reframed as one? It's, you know, use your difference to make a difference. So how do you, Natasha, use your difference to make a difference? I, I take each day and I try to save myself, right? And if we just, you know, instead of going across the world to save the world, I believe in saving ourselves and then doing that work and then expanding it outward and, you know, um, basically working with our community to um, help improve things. And then, you know, it basically radiates out from there. So um, save ourselves first and then we can save everyone else. (laughs) Save yourselves first before you can save anyone else. Wow. Save ourselves before we save anyone else. Love it. Okay. <laughs> that's, uh, that's very in- internal to external. I really love it. So uh, thank you. Thank you so much for spending time with us and really sharing your story. Also, congratulations on being a mother. Thank you so much. Uh, the pleasure is mine. Ladies, gentlemen, and gender nonconformers, till next time, use your difference to make a difference. You've just been listening to the As Told by Nomads podcast. For more ways to reach out to Tayo and to use your difference to make a difference, head over to www.tayoroxon.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 